Hello and welcome to the Commonweal Policy Podcast. I'm Craig DL, I'm the Head of Policy and Research at Commonweal. And this week I have uh, our special guest this week is Peter Ryan. Uh, Peter was last on this podcast way back in episode six, just as we were starting out. Uh, so it's really good to have you back, uh, Peter. Uh, Peter's an expert in, in currency and in uh, banking infrastructure, especially the IT side of, of that. Uh, he has written several papers on, on currency, both for Commonweal and for the Scottish Independence Convention, and is one of the core campaigners in this topic uh, within the, the independence movement. Peter, very glad to have you back on the show. How are you? Okay, um, nice to be here. Um, um, <laughs> Interesting that I got um, podcast 101, so I've obviously got to come up with something dis- suitably dystopian um, for the podcast. Yes, <laughs> yes. well, um, I don't know about dystopian, but certainly a topic that is uh, probably one that people should be paying attention to, because it's, it's, it's something that is, when we've been talking about currency in the independence movement, especially over the last seven, eight years, um, and as we go into a new independence campaign over the next couple of years, we have to understand just how much the currency landscape has changed in the world in in that time period. So we're talking about one of these new innovations that's been coming in over the last few years, the concept of central bank digital currencies or CBDCs. So Peter, let's just start. What the heck is a CBDC? (laughs) So central bank digital currencies. So, um, that I'll, I'll I'll go back a bit in time. Yeah. So we go back to to 1844, um, the Bank Charter Act. Um, so what before that act, um, banks in the UK could could issue their own currency. They could just you know start printing currency. It caused inflationary problems and it caused um, bank failures. So under that act, apart from banks in Northern Ireland and Scotland. Um, the Bank of England was the only bank that was allowed to, to print money, to print physical money. So that's central bank money. And the idea behind that was that it safeguarded the currency so that you know you wouldn't have banks just, well, we've, we've got a bit of a shortfall, we can just print some more money and, and it, you know, everything will be fine. So it, it created a sort of national standard for money. Since that time, um, in the days of, sort of physical money, we've, money's evolved. And increasingly, um, there are, in most countries, there are three types of money. So you have the physical money, the notes and coins in your pocket. Yeah. Um, you also have... Um, what is known as commercial bank money, but that's the money in your bank account, in your RBS, your Lloyds, your co-op bank account. Um, and that money is money that is generally um, backed and created by the commercial banks. So when those banks failed, as they did in the, the financial crisis, there would be problems accessing that money. And so that was the reason why they need to be bailed out and why we now have a, a deposit guarantee to, to allow people yeah. to access to their money because these banks were inherently unstable. 
Now, there's a third type of money, and it's called central bank money. And it's money held in, in central banks like the, the Bank of England. And that's the safest form of money. And that form of money is backed by the central, central bank, the Bank of England. And because the, the Bank of England is the bank that, can, that issues the currency, it can create more if, it, if there are any shortfalls in, in currency. Um, but that's, that safe form of money, that central bank money, is only available to some financial institutions and the UK government. It's not available to, to you or I. So we um, can't have a bank account with the Bank of England at the moment. A bank account with the Bank of England. So we're, we're sort of restricted to um, bank accounts with, with banks that can go bust. And we're also restricted to um, accessing central bank money in a printed physical form, so the notes and coins. And so that, so what the central bank digital currency effectively is, is an electronic form of money. So it's not physical like notes and coins, but it's backed by the central bank. So you have, it's a safer form of money. And that form of money, you know, would, could be available to individuals, could be available to businesses, and it would allow us to, to have a safer financial system because we, you know, we could put money in there. If, the, if our bank failed, we would still have the central bank money available to us because it's backed by the central bank. So in the same way that when RBS failed, you know, an RBS note you could still use, you could still go and, and spend it in a, in a shop, but RBS, the bank, had failed and needed bailing out. So it, you know, it's, it's a way of providing that safer form of money to, to, to the economy. So, so why why is this happening? Why is it happening now? Especially as you said, you know, our bank account is protected by by regulations. So surely, if our bank fails, we would get to keep our money. Um, okay. So the reason why it's happening now, um, and the, it it, it ha- there had been sort of this sort of background noise of people exploring this, um, but in twenty nineteen, Libra. Um, the Facebook currency came along, and this looks like being a a systemic, a systemically important new type of of money, so that um, it will be um, Facebook, who aren't regulated as a bank or any other type of financial institution, could start impacting the economy, so that if we start spending money on Facebook. We're spending money in in Libra on a new type of of currency, and what that what central banks thought was we're beginning to lose control of 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 the economy. You know there are certain ways that that, that central banks can impact the economy, particularly around you know, setting exchange rate uh, setting um, interest rates, but if if these new types of um, currency, like Libra, the Facebook currency, Bitcoin, other types of, of digital currencies come in, 
Um, they typically are, are run by either decentralized or run by institutions which aren't regulated by the central banks. And so suddenly the, the central banks are losing control of their economy. If we all start using um, Libra to spend money, then you know they, the, if inflation starts picking up, the interest rate, or, you know, it can't affect the interest rate on Libra. And mm, because yeah. of that, the central banks start losing control of their economy. Now, different central banks have got slightly different reasons for wanting to intervene. Um, in the economy and it's worth looking at a few examples to, to sort of understand this because up to now it's all been fairly technical yep. so I'll start with, with with Sweden now Sweden you know is approaching a cashless society it's something around six percent of, of transactions involve cash now you know a lot of places in Sweden just don't take cash it's just not something they use what this has a, a number of, of impacts to the Swedish central bank, the Riksbank. So they're losing income because cash has been used less. Um, they also feel that because everything is, is digital, effectively it's a private form of money that's being used. It's money that's been um, it, that is being created by commercial banks, and then there's the there's a danger of them losing control and certain people being left behind, people who still want to use cash, no longer being able to take part in the economy. So Sweden's been quite forward-looking at introducing an e-krona as a sort of digital form of cash so that it can continue to impact the economy and, it's, and it can still be financially inclusive. China, who's plan to introduce an EU of a central bank digital currency next year is doing it for slightly different reasons and, and slightly more dystopian for our 101 podcast. Um, so Ch China, um, most uh, retail payments in China were being carried out on what's known as digital wallets rather than through bank accounts, through Alipay, Tencent and companies like this. The Chinese um, Communist Party thought, again, they were losing control of, of the ability to, to know what people are spending money on and uh, you know, losing control of the ability to impact the economy. So they're looking to introduce a... And they have, um, in an experimental form, introduced a... a, a central bank digital currency and a million people have already started using it in China so that's a small section of the population and what they want is a very centralized form of central bank digital currency where they can actually see what you're spending your money on so they, they have some way of looking at yeah, what your bank account is this is what you're spending your money on is that a good thing according to the Chinese Communist Party, for you to be spending your money on. So there are, there are good yeah, and, and, and slightly more sinister reasons for it. 
I guess uh, with something like f- Facebook, I mean, I, d- I don't know much about the internal workings of Libra itself, but I do know that Facebook as a company is founded on that kind of data tracking as well. So there's at least the temptation for them to be controlling that data yeah. uh, if, if, if we're all using that kind of private currency. Well, this, yeah, for Facebook, um, the, the business model was very much, if you know, it's all very well known what people browse on. If you know what they actually spend their money on, that's actually more important data for them. And they were more interested in the data and the money they could, the profits they could make from the data than they were actually on on the movement of money. That was that was secondary to them. That would mean they can cut. They can the they could then sort of undercut banks in how on the costs of making payments. And once you start doing that, you're disintermediating the financial system, and that's yeah, that's something that central banks are, are worried about. They just yeah, it's that idea of losing control of the economy. Yes. Yeah. So how do these central bank digital currencies differ really from normal currency in their use, and why aren't central banks just creating that money and and you know allowing us to have a a Bank of England bank account and filling it with sterling? Um, so now I think it is part is part of really part of a, a wider conversation that needs to be had. Um, so we're moving from a, a physical economy and it's something that's been accelerated through the, the COVID-19 pandemic move, you know, where things moved on, on roads and you visited shops to far more of a digital economy. In the physical economy, you know, physical money is backed by a public institution. The roads are available to everyone. You know, again, it's, it's, they are public, public roads. In the digital world, everything is privatized. And this movement away from cash to, to electronic money in banks is the privatization of the economy. And I think we need to start stepping back and thinking, do we want to lose control of, you know, as, of our economy and hand it over to big business? Because once you get into a digital economy, you start having to prove yourself digitally. And recent um, research from the European Union on their digital identity suggests that you know, each of us have 30, 40, 50 digital identities out there in you know, different social media, different bank accounts, different, you know, um, accounts with people we shop with. And all of that is, is, is held by private companies. And the, the whole economy is starting to be controlled by private companies. Now, is that something we want? Having a central bank digital currency, a public money, is, you know, something, an alternative that, which could then have democratic oversight over the economy and so now typically you know through if you go back through the last 40 years um the idea of um doing everything through um nationalized um institutions went out of favor um and the idea of letting you know do um, light touch on the banks and letting the banks run riot was something very much 
the way that the economy was being run. So that's why we've got to this stage. Now, you know, why don't banks just, you know, start producing their own central bank digital currencies and, and you know, competing? I think what they're doing at the moment, there's a number of experiments about what's the best way of doing this, what would be the effect of the economy, and so on. Um, so, for example, if I felt that I wanted to withdraw my money from my bank and put it in central bank, start a Bank of England account, obviously my bank then has less deposits. It then becomes more expensive for my bank to fund loans. Um, so it either the you know the cost of of loans and mortgages goes up, or we have you know or they give out less loans and mortgages. So there are a number of, of issues that we need to address um, and to be clear about how we how we do this um, before we just go introduce a, a central bank digital currency. Mm -hmm. And those experiments are happening happening now. Um, some of them are technical, some of them are, are policy driven. Um, so there was a report yesterday from the Bank of International Settlement Innovation Centre in in Singapore, which was looking at the speed um, and the energy use of running this, because you know things like Bitcoin are, are use up a lot of energy, um, have a huge carbon footprint. We don't want a central bank digital currency to follow that design. No, so I think I've heard. I think I've heard the, the the example of if you were to buy a cup of coffee with a bitcoin, then in terms of the energy and the electronic waste to produce that transaction, it's the equivalent to buying the cup of coffee and throwing two mo two mobile phones in the bin. So yeah. it's it's yeah, not so a very efficient process. Yeah, uh, if you're going to choose a, a a currency that could be used by everyone, you want it to be an efficient process, and so that that's just a, those technical. Um, and the results were actually quite good um, yesterday. But also there's the policy side. Now, disappointingly, um, the Bank of England, they, they announced this morning the people that are sitting on their, their policy committee for central bank digital currencies. And guess what? It's a lot of people from banks and a lot of people from financial services and things. There isn't people from debt, debt charities. There isn't people from trade unions. You know, this is, you know, it is something that that's happening could have fundamental impact on our economy, and again, it's that small, narrow band of people sitting in the city of London making decisions on behalf of everyone else. Yeah, I mean that was something that um, I, I wrote a paper back in 2017 on on looking at how a, an independent Scot Scotland's central bank could be structured, drawing in examples from central banks around the world. And while there are some examples of banks trying to broaden their advisory base and bring in stakeholders from the wider economy, yeah, it's still very uh, too often. It's still a very small set that, that makes these decisions. Um, I mean, we're, we're, we're at, this. This is obviously it's come out of things like the the, the financial crisis of two thousand and eight, and we've also kind of seen in twenty twenty another financial crisis uh, coming through the pandemic. And in both cases, we did see massive, unprecedented fin financial intervention by central banks and the the, the governments uh, around them. 
massive amounts of money have been injected into the economy. And both times we saw these fears of massive hyperinflation uh, that didn't actually come about. And there's been discussions about why that hasn't come about. Uh, the best story I've kind of seen that makes it simple is, well, that it didn't hyperinflate the economy because it didn't reach much of the economy. Most of that money ended up inflating assets and inflating the billionaire sets. It didn't reach us down in the transactional economy that much. But if we're, if we're coming into the, the central bank digital currency world and we're going to see another possible uh, financial injection into the economy, one that might actually get down to us if it's done in that way, does that fear of hyperinflation come back? Or do you think we we will now go into this new world where once a decade we just have these massive financial interventions and that just becomes a normal thing? Um, I, I hope not. Um, <laughs> though, unfortunately, um, the looming climate climate emergency and climate transition risk, you know, which, you know, it, it does have a name, um, is likely to lead to a banking crisis because there are, you know, there are still banks like HSBC, Barclays, who are trying to lend to the to the, the people behind the Cambo oil field, um, and you know those loans. If if we start moving away from a fossil fuel economy, as we must do, um, then those loans will become worthless, yeah. and so there's another banking crisis looming. You know. Um, and one of the things we have, you know, part of my my Scottish Greens um, policy committee work is we have a motion on this that is is coming to to our, the Scottish Greens conference um, on the tenth of October um, to actually look at how do we, if, you know, how would a central bank need to work um, to avoid that sort of climate risk. You know, how does it um, prevent um, banks continuing to lend to fossil fuel companies? You know, because there are there are things that a, a central bank can do because it, it controls the capital requirements that, that banks need to have to, to lend. And if we can, if we say that the capital that the banks hold needs to be carbon neutral, it can't be you know bonds in fossil fuel companies and so on then you know we can then start to prevent that you know that that sort of risk to the the economy from the climate emergency you know because if we do nothing if we carry on as we are we're going to hit a point where we suddenly think we need to transition we need to transition now and banks have suddenly got loads of worthless assets on their books mm. that is that kind of one one of the, the consequences of having a lender of last resort in the form of, form of a central bank is it can be a bit of a moral hazard if, if someone knows that they can take a financial risk and if it doesn't pan out, they'll get bailed out anyway, then it's not a risk anymore. Um, so, yeah, I could definitely see that as a... As I know that central banks have been starting to consider green issues, although how much of it is actual consideration, how much of it is just we're expected to say this now. Um, how many central banks will be brave enough to, to stand up and say, no, you can't invest in this, or if you do invest in this and it goes bad, which it will, you will not be bailed out. Yeah, so um, 
to to answer your question about the um, the borrowing um, and 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 the inflation, um, what the central banks have used up to now is they've used um, quantitative easing. So what they're effectively doing is they're buying um, government bonds, sometimes other bonds, um, with money that they've created. So they're sort of injecting money into the economy, but also withdrawing um, these these government bonds. So yeah. you know it, you have a point where all the extra lending during the coronavirus. Um, pandemic that the the government has done is actually now owned by the Bank of England. It's created money that the um, that the the government needed to borrow, brought government bonds, and the, yeah. The, so there is the borrowing there, extra borrowing for the government, but it, the the debt is owned by the Bank of England, which is also part of the government. So that's the, the situation. And the reason why that hasn't been inflationary is because, as you said, it, it hasn't reached us because all of those, all that money that's been injected has then been used to buy other assets. And, you know, and people say it's not inflationary, but if you try and buy a house, there's a lot yes. of inflation. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, so, yeah, I, I'd argue you know, it has affected people's lives in a, sort of, in a negative way. Um, so while it's it's helpful for the government, it can borrow cheaply. Is is that improving the life of the average in, in Scottish individual? Yeah. You know, if you if you're sitting on a on a on load of assets, you're fairly wealthy, then you're probably okay with it. If you're struggling to buy your first house or tr- struggling to rent somewhere, then you you know it's not helping you at all. Yeah. So. So yeah, this this again brings us back to that importance of having the the the, the wider stakeholders involved in making these decisions because it, it can't just be the 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 banker set or the one percent you know who are already in that bubble deciding how and where this money should go. Um, yeah, I mean, you could get to the stage where uh, the the Japanese central bank, the Bank of Japan. Effectively, the government wants issues um, debt in in Japan. And the central bank buys it. Yeah, you know, effectively, that that whole debt market in in Japan is, is you know is, it doesn't really function right. as a market yeah. anymore. It's just yeah, the government creates the money that the the the, the bank bank of Japan creates the money that government needs, and you know, and they just carry on like that. And it's it gives you low inflation. Which again helps people if they're you know if they're asset rich, um, doesn't help people in debt, you know necessarily because you know the the cost of that debt, well the interest rate is low, the debt doesn't decline in value because you know in, in, you know, if there was a yeah. higher rate of inflation, it would decline in value. So you know it, it's it, it's a state of affairs that you, you know, carry on, but is there a better way of doing it now? What I think we should we should start to do, um, and this is the, the second part of our, our motion to the Scottish Greens conference, is to introduce a financial health service. Now, the financial health service would be in central bank digital currency. Yep. It would be an account that everyone in Scotland that receives money from the government would have. And we could introduce this you know, to people, you know, 
around 13, 14, so they, you can do um, education in schools about money management, which a lot of people struggle with. You know, in, you know, I certainly struggle with you know, sort of leaving school, ha ha having my first bank account, going way overdrawn and, and all the things that a lot of, lot of people do. Um, and so we could have this idea of everyone having an account, a financial account, in central bank digital currency. So it's with the central bank. And as such, if there was a financial crisis and banks um, went bust, your money would be protected because it would be central bank money. You know, so there may be loans or savings that you have with the commercial bank. Um, and you could, the, the, any deposit guarantee scheme would, would return that, that money. But the rest of us just can continue on our day-to-day -day lives. It would, the other thing that would do is if it would save the government money in that it wasn't paying banking fees to, to pay out things like benefits, yeah. because you know what Universal Credit did was mandated every recipient to have a transactional bank account. That's a great bonus to the banking industry because suddenly all this, all this money from the government, they get fees on, on the payment payments, the movements of money, and they get extra money in their deposits so they can lend to us. If we put that in a financial health service account, what that would mean is the, that the banks would lend, would have less money or would have more expensive lending. What we could do is then take that money as a, as a capital to invest in a green transition. So the yeah. banks are lending less, but the government is investing more. And because the government's doing it, if it if it it would then it could invest for the long-term benefit of Scotland rather than the short-term investment horizon of most banks, which is only two to three years, which is why they tend to ignore the the, the climate crisis because you know shell you know so and, and so on will keep their value in the next couple of years but we need to be investing for a long-term green transition so we don't hit a, a a crisis when we do need to move yeah. from where the fossil fuel economy they have today to a, a, a sort of carbon neutral one in the future yeah, I mean that's certainly a core part of of Commonwealth's own Green New Deal is that is we have to be thinking about a not a two to three year investment horizon, but something like a twenty five to fifty year investment horizon, um, because that that's is the the time scales that you just have to work on, and it's difficult. It's it's not just a from a a shareholder perspective, but also simply from a democracy perspective. Politicians themselves aren't used to thinking beyond the next election. So still a challenge thinking on these timescales, but one that is absolutely necessary. Well, Peter, thank you for coming on to the show. Um, for any green listeners out there, um, Peter's uh, motion on uh, financial services and the financial health service um, will be up at the conference, as it says, in, uh, in October. I encourage you all to, to look out for it. I'll certainly be there at that debate uh, on, on the, the conference, conference floor, virtually or otherwise. So I'm looking forward to seeing and hearing everyone's views on it. Um, and 
just to finish off, as I always do, um, to remind everyone that Commonweal as an organisation, we are entirely dependent on our listeners and our supporters to, to help us produce um, the, the, the next uh, set of policies that we are, we are working on. Um, we aren't government funded. We're not central bank funded. We don't get sponsorships from uh, anyone, not even the financial sector. We don't even have adverts on our website. So if any of you out there uh, are able to support Commonweal, then we we graciously and gratefully um, uh, accept that support and we will put it to the best use we can. Um, thanks once again, Peter. That was a fascinating chat. And Next week, we're going to be looking at the Scottish independence movement, really, uh, Scottish independence movement's relationship with the media. So I hope I'll see you then.